If you have a Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Even though Casey uh, preached from John 13 last week, we're really picking up right where he left off. Last week we read about Jesus uh, in the upper room with his disciples. We saw him washing the disciples' feet, really modeling for the disciples uh, and modeling for us what, what sacrifice really looks like, what, what life in the kingdom really looks like. And so in this scene in Luke 22, it's Jesus there with his disciples in the upper room sharing this Passover meal together the very night he was to be betrayed. So let's dive right into this passage. Luke chapter 22. I'm going to start in verse 14. should have it on the screen here behind me. Scripture says that when the hour came, he reclined at table. Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after uh, they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. <laughs> and they began to question to one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. God, again, speak to us this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for this story and what it means. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciples, this Passover meal, it, it was and is uh, an annual celebration, very important annual celebration in Jewish culture that, that remembers and commemorates one of the most important events uh, in the life of God's people in the Old Testament. Some of you may know the story in the book of Exodus in which the Egyptians had uh, enslaved the Israelites, had enslaved God's people in Egypt, and God called Moses, who was an Israelite, God called Moses to approach Pharaoh. may even have a picture of this uh, there on the computer. That Moses is approaching Pharaoh. God called him to go to Pharaoh, who was the most important man and the most powerful man in the world at that time. And God called Moses, an Israelite and also a fugitive, to go to Pharaoh and ask that Pharaoh let God's people go. That he would allow them to go free from their slavery. And this is a tall order because what Moses is essentially asking of Pharaoh is that <clears throat> That he, he let this massive uh, slave labor force free that, that their whole economy is based on and let them go out from bondage and into freedom. 
And if you know the story, you'll remember that, that Moses repeatedly uh, asked Pharaoh to let God's people go. Mo- Pharaoh repeatedly refused to let God's people go. And the story essentially culminates in God sending a series of plagues against Pharaoh and against Egypt to force Pharaoh's hand in letting God's people go. And the tenth plague, this plague of the, the death of the firstborn, they had experienced all kinds of plagues from God's hand. And now there was this plague that every firstborn in each household would die who was not covered by the blood of a sacrificed lamb. So in this sense, God's punishment, this plague, this expression of God's wrath and his punishment against Pharaoh and against Egypt would pass over those who were under the blood of the sacrifice. And since then, God's people have celebrated this Passover meal every year to remember God's mercy and provision. Even you see Jesus, that's what he's doing here with his disciples and also to remember and celebrate the release that God gave them out from under slavery in Egypt. And this meal, um, it wasn't just a normal meal. This meal had very specific Uh, very specific routines, very specific rhythms. This was a sacred and special and holy meal. And each part was very uh, specifically designed to communicate something unique about God's provision to his people there in Egypt. Everett Ferguson, in his book, Backgrounds of Early Christianity, he says, the Passover lamb was roasted and eaten after sunset in a family group of at least 10 people. And people ate the meal there while reclining, as they did many meals. And this meal included, besides the lamb, unleavened bread and bitter herbs as a reminder of Israel's bitter affliction at the hands of the Egyptians. Another writer continued, said the Passover meal had to be prepared in a certain way and had a distinct form. It included four points at which the presider, holding a glass of wine, would get up and explain uh, different aspects of the feast's meaning. The four cups of wine represented the four promises made by God in Exodus chapter 6. So the the promises were, number one, for the rescue from Egypt. Number two, from freedom from slavery. Number three, for redemption by God's divine power. And number four, for this renewal of his relationship with his people. And through each of these glasses of wine, as the presider over the meal would hold this glass of wine, Throughout the meal, the story of the Passover in Egypt would be told. But here in Luke, here in Luke, Jesus does something astounding. Here in Luke, Jesus, just before his death, he breaks a thousand years of Jewish tradition. He he took and broke the bread, but instead of sharing the Passover story, what does he say? He says, take this. This is my body. And he he takes the glass of wine and he lifts it up. And instead of, again, recounting these stories of God's provision and Israel's affliction, he says, this cup is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood for you. At this point in the encounter, everyone would have been uh, shocked, right? Even though throughout Jesus' ministry, he had repeatedly told them that, that he was the one who would forgive them. He was the one to release them from spiritual slavery. He was the one to deliver them, to cover them against God's punishment. He had told them all these things throughout his ministry. 
Jesus saying this at this particular moment, at this meal around this table, no one would have anticipated. Because Jesus is not speaking of something that had happened in the past, but he was pointing to something that would happen in the future, a new kind of deliverance, in his language, a new covenant. And we're going to talk about what that means. Almost every commentator notes, as you're reading uh, commentaries on this passage and in related passages in the Gospels, almost every commentator notes that the most surprising thing about this whole story is that there's no mention of the lamb. The lamb was the central part of this meal. It was the most crucial element in this celebration. In the Gospel of Mark, he makes note early on that they had sacrificed a lamb, but even in his telling of this story, there is no mention of the Passover lamb at all. In this one moment, he reinterprets a thousand years of tradition in history, and he tells them something new. He does not say this is a picture of the old covenant that God made with Moses, He says, this is a new covenant God is making with you. This is very important. This concept of covenant, which sounds like a very churchy word, uh, and I'll have a definition for you very simply on the screen. Uh, A covenant is a relational commitment. So when when you make a covenant with someone, you're making this relational commitment. Uh, In the Bible, it talks about marriage as a kind of covenant. And this this idea of covenant is seen from the earliest pages of Scripture. This is not a new idea to Jesus. This is not a new idea to his disciples. And yet what Jesus is doing here is astounding. In in Genesis, you may know the story, in the beginning of beginnings, as you open the first pages of Scripture, God creates Adam and Eve. And this, let me just give you a little uh, disclaimer here at the front end. This sermon's going to be a little bit different than uh, most sermons, at least that I preach. And, and really what I'm trying to do this morning is to tell you this broad sweeping story of what led, this, led to this moment when Jesus was with his disciples and why that moment was so critical. So in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, the, the first people and and it's this beautiful act of creation and God gives them all kinds of freedom he gives them freedom to enjoy each other to enjoy all of his creation and even to enjoy God's direct presence with them in the garden of Eden literally in paradise and yet he just gives them this one command this one rule many of you know it he says I don't want you to eat from this one tree because if you eat from this one tree you're gonna die this relationship would be broken. And of course, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Uh, They do exactly what God said not to do. And in the end, as God pursues them, and that's what's uh, some of the most beautiful aspects of the story, as God is pursuing them, he's not left them alone. They respond like many of us would respond, and they hide, right? They hide from God. They begin to blame God. They begin to blame each other. They don't want to take responsibility for their own sins. They do exactly what any of us would do. They do exactly what we all already do in the midst of our sin. And of course, there was consequences of their sin, just as God said, and now they would die, just as he said, and yet in his mercy, God pursues them. And in fact, the story says that They were ashamed because they were naked. They realized that they were naked and they were ashamed of themselves and of their bodies. And in God's mercy, God sacrificed animals to provide skins for Adam and Eve to cover their shame. 
to hide their guilt. So from the first page of Scripture, the blood of an animal is now associated with the covering of shame and as a means of God's mercy to His people. And though they were punished, there were consequences, to, there was consequences to the sin that they committed, just as God said, God made them a promise. He made them a promise and He says, as bad as it is, as, as much as, yes, you will have to struggle through the consequences of your sin, and it is going to be hard, and your, your natures are going to be fighting against one another from here on. One day, one day a, a baby would be born, and though he would be wounded by the serpent who deceived you, ultimately, he's going to crush him. This child's going to win. Only a few chapters later in Genesis, after Adam and Eve, we are told another very familiar story, the story of Noah and his ark. And in Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man. So the story has essentially gone from bad to worse, right? You know, you know the story of Genesis. Many of us know the story. It had gotten from bad to worse so that in Genesis 6, it says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. They had forgotten God. They had, they had abandoned him. They had betrayed him. They were disobedient to what he was calling them to do. And every person, though every person, including Noah and his family, was wicked and evil, God showed grace to Noah and his family. Literally unmerited favor in Genesis 6 verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This isn't something he deserved. This was, this was grace to him. And in God's grace, what does God do? He provides a way out. He provides a way for them, as a, as a mercy to them, a way out, a way of salvation for Noah and his family. He tells them to build an ark. If you're in this ark, you will avoid my wrath, the wrath that is coming, the wrath that is deserved. And of course, all who were in the ark would be saved. They would be covered against God's wrath as this flood would come and destroy everyone else on the planet. All deserved God's wrath, all would get God's wrath, but God would show grace to this group and save them through the ark. And this is where we get the very first mention in the Bible of this word covenant. In Genesis 6, 18, I, I, I should have it here behind me. God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant, my relational commitment with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. He's made them a promise at this point. This is the first time you see this word covenant in the Bible. And of course, though there were consequences to their sin and disobedience, just as there were consequences to Adam and Eve's sin and disobedience, God was merciful to them and they were saved. And the story goes on throughout Genesis. In Genesis 12, we meet this very important character um, of, of several major religions, this character Abraham, or Abram as he's originally called. In Genesis 12, we meet this guy Abram, he's 75 years old. He's an old man. He's a pagan man living in a pagan country with pagan practices. And again, by God's grace, not because he deserved it, Abram is chosen to 
uh, from among all the people to represent God to the world. He calls this old man out and he says, Abram, I know you're, I know you're comfortable here. I know you're rich here. I know, I know you're an old man and you're set in your ways and you, you're surrounded by family. I'm calling you to go to a place that I'll show you. He doesn't even tell him. He just says, I want you to get up and I want you to leave. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guide you essentially step by step to this new place, to this land of promise. And Abraham, though he was imperfect, very imperfect, if you know the story, Abram did terrible things, terrible things. He obeyed in faith. God was faithful to the promise um, as he cared for Abram throughout his journey. He was 75 years old when God called him. And the promise that God gave to Abram was very interesting. He gave Abram this, this series of promises. He says, number one, that he was going to make Abram into a great nation. And that, that Abram in this nation would inherit this great piece of property and that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And that a king would one day come from his line that would rule forever. Now again, the only problem here is that Abraham is a 75-year-old man. Abraham is a 75-year-old man who's wandering around in the desert away from everything he knows, away from his family, away from his people, away from the life that he built, all of his connections. And he was married to an elderly woman who had never been able to conceive. It seems like a terrible plan from the start, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like a joke. God, what I, God is saying to Abram, here's what I want for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you all this land. Your, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. You're going to be a blessing to all the people. One day, your, your line is going to produce a king that will reign forever. And he is an old man with a barren wife wandering around in the desert alone. And in Genesis 15, verse 18, we see our word again for the second time. On this day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. He's making a promise to them. He's, he's making a relational commitment to Abraham. You, and you're seeing a pattern, right? That's, that's the goal of this sermon, is that I want you to see that this is the same story being told from the very first pages of Scripture. God made this covenant uh, with Abram that was not a different covenant, than what he had already established with Adam and Eve or with Noah, but a, a, a deepening of this same covenant relationship. In ancient cultures, um, families and individuals would make covenants together. And the way they would do that, it's very interesting, the way they would do that is the, that this, this either two individuals or maybe these two clans or these two families would gather together animals to sacrifice. It's very gruesome. They would gather these uh, animals to sacrifice. They would sacrifice these animals. Literally, many of these animals, they would cut in half. And so it's hard for us to imagine because we don't live in a culture like this, but um, they would gather these animals, cut them in half, and there would just be this, this puddle, massive puddle of, of gruesome blood, guts, all the remains of animals being slaughtered. And cut in half. And the way they would make a covenant with each other, they, the way they would establish this relational commitment is they would, they would walk arm in arm through the blood and essentially say, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I break this covenant. 
So that's, that's how they would make covenants with each other in the Old Testament and in ancient cultures. But in this scene, this is very important. In this scene, God calls Abraham. He says, go gather the animals, go kill the animals, go make this sacrifice. But instead of God taking Abraham through the blood, God passes through the blood alone. He passes through all the pain and the sacrifice in this gruesome puddle. He goes all by himself. And what he is saying to Abraham and what he's saying to us is, God is saying, I am taking responsibility for our relationship. I am taking responsibility, not you. I am taking responsibility of making you into a great nation. I'm taking the responsibility of bringing forth this great king that would rule forever, this one who would crush the head of the serpent. God says, that's on me. That's on me. And of course, if you continue to read through the scriptures and you get to the book of Exodus, you see that God made good on his promises. And even though Israel was enslaved, they had become a great nation. They were beginning to outnumber the stars in the sky. And even, even though Abram was, um, by the time of it, he was, he was 100 and his wife was 90 when they had their son. How many of us have waited that kind of timeline for God to make good on his promises? Anybody here 100? Is there a woman here who is 90 who would be excited about being pregnant right now? Anybody? And you can imagine how his wife Sarah felt. Like, I, God gave me this promise? I'm not totally sure I want God to make good on this promise. But he does. He makes good on his promise. Abraham and Sarah at 100 and at 90, she conceives, they give birth to the son. This family grew into a great nation, the great nation of Israel. But they ended up as slaves, and God had promised them that too. That was going to be part of this journey. They, they ended up as slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh, and they, they, they suffered under this harsh rule of bondage by the Egyptians. They were far away from the land of promise. And it seemed like, even though the nation was big, all this other stuff was, there's no way it was going to happen. It was incomprehensible that they would ever be a great nation that would rule the earth as a great kingdom forever. They were slaves, the lowest of the low. And yet again, God in his grace, God in his mercy, he chose this very unlikely person to show how, how good and faithful he was as the one true God. In Exodus 2, 24, it says God, God heard their groanings. He heard the groanings of these slaves. And it says that he remembered his covenant with them. He remembered his promise with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And God chose Moses. And if you don't know the story of Moses, Moses too was a scoundrel. He was a, he was a murderer. He was a fugitive. He was unworthy of God's favor. Like Adam, like Noah, like Abraham. Unworthy to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt, but God appeared to Moses through a burning bush and told him to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And as we said, God delivered Israel from this terrible slavery as Pharaoh relented when all the firstborn in his kingdom were slaughtered. And they left to go claim their promised land. And not only did God make good on the promise to free the Israelites from slavery, but this nation had grown massive, just as he said, and now another king was born, King David. This shepherd boy, 
The most unlikely. And do you see the, the pattern of, of the way God works with people? Oftentimes he's using the people who know they are absolutely useless. He, he calls this shepherd boy that no one would have ever thought would be king. And this, this boy is anointed. God's anointed. The one who's received God's favor that this would be king. This would be the representative before all the people. This would be a representative of God to the nations. And yet David, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a liar. And yet because of his faith in God, not because of his faithfulness, Scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart. You see, David served as, as a symbol of what was to come. David was um, an anointed king, but he was not the anointed king. They were still waiting for this king to rule forever. All of God's people, from, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to King David, throughout the history of God's people, they had been waiting since the beginning. They had been waiting for this child who would crush the head of the serpent. They'd been waiting for this final protection from God's wrath. They'd been waiting for, a, for an ultimate deliverer, this king who would rule forever. And then you turn the few pages and you get to the New Testament and as soon as you read, you learn about this baby, this little boy, this rabbi that no one would have expected to be king. He was anything but what they had expected, and yet he was much, much, much more than any of them deserved. Jesus came as a king, and yet he served everybody, washing their feet like a slave. Jesus established an eternal, never-ending kingdom, and yet he was murdered by his own subjects. He avoided political power. He, he refused to exert any military might. Jesus, as God he is the creator of all things, could have snapped his fingers and the Roman soldiers who were torturing him would have died in an instant. But he didn't do that. Essentially saying, I'm going to walk through this blood for you. I'm going to go through the sacrifice. I'm going to take responsibility for your sins. He washed feet, he fed the hungry, he, he, he associated with scandalous women, and he befriended crooked men, he caressed the sick and filthy, he welcomed little children, he loved the disdain, and eventually, as you continue to read, he was arrested for treason, even though he was king, and arrested for blasphemy, even though he was God, he was mocked and he was tortured and he was finally killed. The most unlikely king, right? The most unlikely king. And, and in that upper room, in that upper room in Luke with his disciples, instead of drawing their attention to what God had done for them before, he drew their attention to himself to this new covenant of his body and blood given for them. All that God's people had longed for, all that everyone longs for, was fulfilled in him. 
He didn't, he didn't mention the slain lamb because he himself was the spotless lamb heading to the slaughter for them that very night. You see, Christmas is, Christmas is the story of God making good on his promises. Christmas is a story of, of, of God fulfilling forever the longings of our heart. It's a story of, of a baby born to crush the head of a serpent, to deliver his people from slavery and to rule as king forever. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of the gospel. Let me pray for us, church.